Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest, the official podcast of the Broad Press, where we take you beyond the headlines and do a deep dive into some of the many interesting articles written by our team this week. My name is Noah Nickel. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Broad Press and host of the latest, and today I'm joined, as always, by Holly Morrison, our managing editor, as well as one of our arts and entertainment editors, Asenia Lyle. How are you both doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you, well, Noah? Good. How am I? No one asks how I am. No, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. All is, all is well. Uh, but yes, great to have both of you here today for these fun topics. We always have a fun time. Three of us get rambling about movies and whatnot. So a lot of the news this week I felt was kind of a continuation from last week. I don't know if you, either of you felt the same way, but you know, you still kind of have Joe Rogan and his issues. They might've changed now to, to other controversial topics, but he's still kind of in hot water. Uh, you know, the, the truckers are still honking their horns in Ottawa nonstop. Uh, and kind of beyond that, nothing has really evolved per se, or you know, not a lot, not a lot new has come up. Uh, but because of that, you know, we got a chance this week, most of us, to explore some evergreen topics, as we uh, lovingly call them here at the Brock Press, which are those that really never go out, you know, of uh, fashion. You know, they're always topics you can uh, come back to, regardless of you know what's in the news. Um, you know, naturally, they make for great podcast topics. So this week, uh, with that said, is chock full of some evergreen topics. A little bit of timely one with the romantic comedy stuff, but uh, Chad's feature on education, for example. And uh, if we do, if time permits, uh, Holly's opinion piece about mathematics and learning math in school. But yeah, with that, we will get into the discussion. So this week for his um, big feature piece for the winter semester, one of our news editors, Chad Ellis, wrote about some of the issues he's come to uh, notice uh, with the education system, particularly with universities during his time as an undergrad at Brock. Uh, While his views are primarily based on his personal experience, most of the criticisms he kind of levies in the article can easily extend to, you know, throughout Ontario and likely you know, beyond Ontario to Canada and, you know, even elsewhere. I'm sure it's not uh, much different than when you're talking kind of in these bigger issues he identifies. Uh, Some of the things he talks about are, you know, the major imbalance and inequity between international and domestic student tuition rates, as well as the just general uh, precipitous rise of uh, tuition rates uh, in general. And also, um, you know, the increasing reliance on precarious contract professors and a few more things that we'll get into when we kind of break this down further. Um, So I'm just I'll throw it to you two right away. So how do you think we could best address some of the, uh, you know, the issues with tuition costs, Uh, particularly, you know, Chad noted that uh, for Brock undergrads, it's climbed uh, 12 percent for domestic students and 75 percent for international students in the last eight years, which, you know, I knew it was a lot, but those numbers were pretty crazy to me. But I'm just curious what you, either of you think could, you know, maybe address this rise somewhat. I guess it's sort of hard to say because I think the reason that it keeps rising and being so inaffordable 
it has to do a lot with like the kind of society that they exist in which sort of is a cop-out answer but I guess I don't really know a lot about the nitty-gritty of running a university but I do know that in a lot of cases it's run more like a business than like a school and that's because there's a focus on profits and then you have to pay everybody involved in running a university and so it's expensive to run a university so it's expensive to go to a university but I think if there was more sort of importance placed on education beyond just like you need a degree to get a job regardless of if the degree actually has anything to do with what your job is um, that could be a step in the right direction I don't know if that makes sense you know I think that definitely made sense I also think like one of the things that Chad mentioned in the article was um, just like the way that universities get funding like government funding for publicly funded institutions has been sort of like steadily declining and so yeah it does have a lot to do with like the society and the sort of government of the time and just what the society that like universities exist in values and it seems like less and less um we value publicly accessible education it is interesting though because there's this sentiment that like oh you're never going to be able to get a good job if you don't go to university but then universities are like inaccessibly expensive and everyone's going into tremendous amounts of debt to get a degree. And then a lot of the jobs that you're going to get after the degree, like you don't necessarily apply the learning that you did in university to those degrees because a lot of university programs are not that practical. They're very like research oriented. And I've noticed this, especially with like applying to grad school. A lot of the time you go into university and you're doing research and you're learning skills that will allow you to work at a university. And so the kinds of doors that you're opening up with like uh, undergrad and graduate education is to work in a university, which is kind of weird because it, it's a very small world when you think of it that way. Not a bad place to get a job though, if you can swing it to that. So there is value in uh, working at a university, even if that's all universities prepare you for. But no, I, I get the larger point that that's obviously, it's very um, pigeonhole, you know, it's very much pigeonholes people. Uh, whereas, you know, I, I know a couple of friends who are getting uh, certificates and uh, diplomas or whatever they're called uh, at uh, colleges in Ontario, and they're much uh, more tailored to the things that they want to do. They're much more job oriented. And so uh, for people that were kind of mis misled or, you know, didn't really understand what what there was for them to gain from going to university getting an undergrad degree i think they're kind of uh kicking themselves some of them but others are just frankly just uh you know finishing their degrees or even stopping halfway through and going to uh, get a one or two year uh, certificate or diploma instead uh, in something that they feel is more uh, career oriented and more kind of geared towards their interests which uh, i think importantly is becoming less uh, stigmatized because I think there was definitely a a major um, block with going to college, especially with how we, uh, you know, how it was kind of the the streaming system in high school for classes. Right, college was kind of was the one that was looked down upon, was the one for the people who had lower grades, and it's kind of since then I feel that we've uh, kind of been tracked to believe a certain you know things about university versus college that aren't necessarily true. 
Yeah, and like you were mentioning, um, like certificate jobs and like jobs that you know a college program. So like jobs more in the trades, and then also like programs that are more hands-on. I also find with like university degrees and the kind of jobs that you get out of university, especially when it comes to like academia, like those jobs might be good if you're able to sort of like swing it and get like a permanent position. But I found that like because I have friends who are like very in academia like those jobs are getting harder and harder to get like as time goes on so they might be good jobs but you also have to sort of like work yourself like basically to death um doing sort of free work and working for pennies uh to even like get a chance at getting a good job so i think the skills that sort of university teaches you it sort of tells you that they're going to be like incredibly valuable and they're going to sort of enhance your life and then you can't really apply them in the field that, you know, they're most applicable to because it's even more inaccessible. Yeah, I think people are uh, realizing quickly that, you know, the to pursue the field that you have dreamed of working in, you know, takes more than uh, just going to school. And, you know, it's not fair to put that necessarily on the in, on individuals themselves. It's definitely something that was um, perpetuated uh, in high school for sure. Yeah, it's crazy. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't have this job if I didn't decide to go to university. Um and like I don't know, this job in first year at least is very much what made me realize what I want to do. Um so it was a lot of money to pay to make that realization that I don't think I would have otherwise. Um Yeah, like there has yeah. to be a better way for people to figure out what they want to do with their lives because I feel really similarly where it's like I figured out a lot of stuff in university and I got to do a bunch of things that I would never have known about or known that I like doing but then I'm like okay but <laughs> you're supposed to go to university having already decided what you want to do with your life at like 17 years old and then you get to university and you have to readjust because you don't really know that much about the world when you're 17. Yeah, a two or three year uh, journalism degree from a college would have been sufficient for me. But hey, I'm here now and I got a hefty monthly payment for 10 years ahead of me. So <laughs> no looking back, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, if anyone in high school uh, hears any of this, please take your time or picking a program. Uh, not to say that I haven't enjoyed mine or that it can't be, you can't kind of make changes and decisions on the fly, but you're signing up for more than, uh, you know, more than four years. Uh, but with that, on to the next question. So Chad also talked about research at universities and how it's, uh, you know, increasingly becoming tied with private business. Uh, but this isn't, necessarily a, a new thing it might be in like a more out in the open or extreme way in, in recent years but it's been a long time coming that or you know going that um you, governments have been funding uh, public research that goes on to to massively uh, support private businesses and their um inventions quote unquote their products that they've created but in reality it's on the back to a lot of publicly funded research uh, but they get to privatize the uh, the benefits of that. So I'm just wondering your uh, 
your guys' thoughts on that, if you think that's something that we should kind of keep how it is or, you know, that, that doesn't seem right to you. I guess we're seeing, like, again, the results of everything being motivated by profit. And so on one hand, I'm like, I think research should happen and be used in the way that's going to better society as much as possible. But on the other hand, I'm like, if there weren't privatization, would it happen? Who would pay for it? And like, we're sort of stuck in this system where everything's like a circle of how are you going to make money? Yeah, I think like the sort of like, how are you going to make money question driving research is I think maybe like a bigger problem than the fact that like, research helps sort of private industry just the fact that like the things that people are able to sort of learn about um are sort of motivated entirely by what's going to make them money like i know the thing that they talk about is making sure that their research is something that they can sort of sell to a team one day um and like of course like power to them use your research to get a job with the blue jays or whatever but also like aren't there like there are so many questions that, like, I have and that other people have that, like, I think deserve to be answered that aren't necessarily going to make a whole lot of money for a whole lot of people. And so I think just the fact that money drives what questions get answered is, for me, the thing that is, I think, the most sort of problematic. If you couldn't tell by the way I phrased the question, I don't like it. <laughs> Definitely don't like that governments fund research at universities. And that research then goes on to make companies tons of money and the government sees none of that. I think that's pretty backwards. Uh, and really is putting on so much of the the burden, you know what I mean? Like the the cost of doing business is being put on the government rather than massive businesses, despite them profiting wildly off of it. Like Apple is one I know they benefited massively from uh, public research in the States. Uh, even the vaccines, for example, the COVID vaccines, you know, a lot of that research is from uh, publicly funded institutions around the world. And, you know, because of patent protections, a few very small number of companies have been able to mildly profit off of the vaccines. Uh, and that's, you know, a perfect example of what uh, Chad talks about and, you know, kind of the issue with with how like research is is focused, and I mean Holly, you touched on it as well. You know the the uh, the always looking at the ability to sell research is not exactly you know it, it doesn't fit that mold that Chad mentioned in his article and Asenia you mentioned of bettering society, right? The the value of the research becomes its ability to be uh, commoditized rather than um, you know, rather than just to to be to the for the benefit of all of us. Uh, yeah, education topic on Chad's article uh, deals with how you know he talks about quality assurance and you know performance of universities and how that's kind of become very um, professionalized. I guess not really the right word, but um, just kind of standardized. I guess that's a better term for it. So I was just curious how you uh, both think, you know, would be best to judge a university's quote unquote performance. I don't know what the best way to judge the performance of a university is, but I know that 
I don't think it should be how many people can we give degrees just and how much money can we make because I know a lot of people who don't really give a shit about their education and they're just sort of like doing the bare minimum and they still pass all their classes even though they're not learning anything and it's like the reason they're here is because everyone's expected to go to university and that's sort of like a thing that I think is wrong like I don't think everyone should need to go to university to be able to get a good job and I think if you're in university and you don't really want to be learning anything then there's no point in being there because it's so expensive and it's a lot of time and then universities end up just sort of like churning out degrees without actually prioritizing teaching people things there's a lot of things that I find like frustrating about how universities work in general it's though not prioritizing teaching not prioritizing learning but prioritizing like how do we make money and how do we make students happy and it's like make students happy by teaching them not by just making courses as easy as possible no i think you're like totally right and also like sort of like leading into how i think it should be done like i don't know like i don't think there is like a standardized like qualitative sorry quantitative um can you tell that i didn't do great in the research methods class um but i don't think that there's a standardized sort of quantitative way to measure the performance of the university especially when like obviously like as we have pretty much said like we believe the function of a university is to teach people stuff um and for people to learn um and better society and that that's a really hard thing to measure so i think i don't know i think it's a very hard thing to evaluate i think maybe like because like asking about student experience doesn't always work because like asenia said sometimes students are just like if I didn't get a 90 this class gets a zero um other times students are like really lenient and so like it's kind of difficult to sort of figure out when a university is doing well by the people who sort of live work and learn in and around it yeah because like University of Toronto is like very highly respected but when I talk to people who go there, they're like, there's so many people in my class, I've never spoken to my professor, and I don't really know, like, I don't feel connected to the other people who go there. And it's like, okay, so they're, they're a good business, they make a lot of money, and they have a ton of students, but is it a good university if you're not really getting, we were talking about earlier, the value of networking through universities, and it's like, you're not going to get that at U of T unless you're, like, really putting in extra work and like staying after class and going to office hours which unless you need that to learn you shouldn't have to be doing to get a good university experience i think it's also hard to rate uh, universities at all uh, i know that's a big thing like the yeah, there's like those national rankings and even international rankings of universities, although not many Canadian universities make that list. But I find that so hard to <laughs> I find it so hard to quantify and hard to make sense of that. Like the reality is most people go to one university their whole life, maybe two. <laughs> like that the average number cannot be that high, uh, frankly. Uh, so like how are people judging the like that type of judgment kind of requires comparison, I think. You know what I mean? Like to say like, oh, well, this one was, you know, I enjoyed this at this university, but this other one, you know, they did this really well. But like, 
I feel like most people are not in any position to know that. They just kind of parrot what they're told, right? Like the only way they can be quantifying that is by, like you said, the the uh, enrollment and you know the the difficulty of the admission requirement and uh, you know their endowment, things like that. Yeah, and like revenue and those things which don't really have as much to do with like what are people learning. Um, and then when you think about like jobs, it's like well some more prestigious universities might lead to better jobs, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the education there is better or worse. I also think like different universities, every university is going to have different faculty in different departments. And so some faculty might be really strong and some might not be. Yeah, I know that's one thing that like a lot of people when I was going to high school were talking about is like in Canada, like the prestigiousness of a school is more like program based like it's far more impressive to get into like I think like computer science or engineering at like Waterloo than it is to like I don't know get into Waterloo's like creative writing program um so in that way it makes it really hard to evaluate because it's like Waterloo's a great school if you're doing science or it's like U of T is a great school, again, if you're doing science. Or, like, even people who are like, Brock is a great school if you're doing con ed or sport management. Like, it total, it's totally dependent on the faculty, on the program, on what you're learning. Because, like, they sort of do quantify, like, graduate success by who's able to get a job. And, like, con ed and SPEMA at Brock, yeah, pretty, pretty safe bet you're going to get a job. And even that is questionable because it's, like, yeah, these schools get high ratings because they're super, they have super competitive programs and people, uh, you know, it looks good on resume that you graduated from that school and that program. But so many of those programs, people drop out like crazy because they can't handle the stress of it all. And it's made purposely stressful so then they can maintain their, their public appearance of, you know, they have this dropout rate and, you know, the admissions requirements are so high and to stay in the program is so hard, right? Like, that's the measure of success, but it's like you're leaving all these people in in your wake who are just miserable and some of them just completely snap and it's, you know, like that and that's the measure of the quality of the program, I guess, that you know, they have no free time and their lives are miserable and they drop out and don't have a degree and have wasted so much money and it's like. All right, so the next topic we're covering is romantic comedies in anticipation of Valentine's Day, of course. So this week and last week, I wrote about some romantic comedies. So last week, I wrote about When Harry Met Sally, which is kind of a classic that I wanted to write about. And then this week, I wrote about Always Be My Maybe, which is from 2019. So it's more of a recent one, but I think it's a really, really strong romantic comedy. It's very funny. And I rewatched it, obviously, for the article. And I was really surprised by how just sort of creative and funny it is while still operating in the romantic comedy structure. Um, it stars Ali Wong and Randall Park, who are both amazing. Um, and so we were also talking about how, while some romantic comedies are better than others, the genre sometimes gets lumped into the so bad it's good category. I think this happens a lot with really formulaic movies. There are some really amazing ones that absolutely stand out, and then there are a lot where it's like, someone takes the formula and just makes an absolute mess of it. I wrote about the royal treatment a while ago, and I think that movie absolutely falls into the category of, like, they follow the formula, but the writing and the acting are bad, so it's just an absolute mess, and it's kind of hilarious because of that. 
And so Holly wrote an opinion piece about how bad movies are good movies. And so that sort of ties into our discussion of romantic comedies. Um, what are your guys' favorite romantic comedies? I think I'm going to, like, surprise absolutely no one by saying that I don't watch a lot of romantic comedies. It's just not a genre that, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't find it super interesting. I, like, I don't get me wrong. I love a good romance plot. But I'd rather, like, watch a movie about something else with, like, a B-plot that's about, like, two people falling in love. Um, so I honestly cannot remember the last time I watched a romantic comedy. Um, I'm, I'm legitimately trying very hard to think. And I don't, I don't think I have one. I think there are a lot of movies that aren't romantic comedies, but that you could argue are romantic comedies because there's a romance plot and they're funny. And, uh, my favorite example of that is Shrek. Noah, do you have a favorite romantic comedy? I mean, if we're counting Shrek as a romantic comedy, then yeah, definitely Shrek. <laughs> but no, I, I, I'm in the same boat as Holly. They're really not my thing, uh, much to the chagrin of my girlfriend who likes to watch a lot of them. But uh, Always Be My Movie actually looked really good. I watched the trailer when I was getting the photo for this week, and it looked really funny. So I might actually, uh, you know, give that one a try. Um, I'm looking through a list of 60 of the top ones right now, and I've seen like maybe five or six of them and most of my thoughts were not great on those movies uh like mama mia was on here and i hate that movie i'm one of the few people that's like a music fan of abba and not at all like i hate the, those movies i hate both of them a lot that is devastating i'm a bigger i'm a much bigger fan of the music definitely than i am of the of those movies but trek is a fantastic movie <laughs> Does does Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing count as a romantic comedy? I would think that that is the blueprint for a romantic comedy. Great, then that's my favorite. That's that's my favorite Shakespeare play. Um, and I think it's probably one of the best romantic comedies. Tying it into Holly's article, though, so bad it's good. Uh, on top of the... Uh, grown-ups style movies that Adam Sandler makes, which Holly mentioned in his in your article. He also has like a, a subgenre of just like very generic formulaic um, romantic comedies. And they're not terrible. Uh, one particular movie that stands out is Just Go With It in my mind. I actually like that one. Very formulaic, very generic movie with a couple of those just very uh, low ball, just, gr you know, just gross classic Adam Sandler stylings that you mentioned in your article, Holly. Yeah, something I found really, like, interesting about Holly's article was the, like, of the people who are really serious about movies, it seems like half of them are, like, Marvel is the stuff, and then half of them are the, like, serious dramas are the stuff, and I'm definitely one of the, like, serious drama people. I have absolutely no interest in Adam Sandler or his movies. And so like I like romantic comedies, but the ones I like are the ones that are like kind of elevated or they do something that I think is interesting in the genre because I'm a bit more pretentious about movies. 
like I said in the article, like I tr- I tried so hard to be a pretentious movie person. I tried to watch all the Oscar movies. I tried to watch like every movie that's ever won Best Picture. And I got bored, and, like, the most fun that, like, I have watching a movie is, like, when my sister's like, do you want to watch Grown Ups 2 tonight? And I'm like, hell yeah, I want to watch Grown Ups 2 tonight. That movie is terrible, but it's funny, because sometimes people getting punched in the face is funny. Um, So I do think that, like, I'm a big fan of the, like, not even, like, so bad it's good, just, like, it's good in a different way, Um, you know? To enjoy Much Ado About Nothing and then also to enjoy, like, Wayne's World, I, I understand that that's a weird thing, but also, like, I guess my article was just kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, like, calling The Fast and the Furious, like, high art, um, but then also, like, just people like what they like, and it's fine. Everyone has different tastes. Um, my tastes happen to not include rom-coms all that often, I have to say, I think my one of my favorite rom-coms is probably, like, Gone Girl, which is only a rom-com because there is a romantic relationship between the characters and it's a kind of comedy, but in every other way, it's not a rom-com at all. Because I guess, yeah, like, I only really like super specific rom-coms, which is why I just focused on two that I think are outstanding um, to lead up to Valentine's Day. I do think that, like, Much Ado About Nothing, it, it's, like, the rom-com sort of of its time, you know, like it it was supposed to be like appealing to the masses and there's in modern staging, there's a lot of like really goofy physical choices that people can make to make it funny to current audiences. And I think that if you're going to produce Shakespeare, you have to try to make it, you know, new and funny in a way that people today will find funny rather than people hundreds of years ago. Shakespeare consistently goes right over my head and I hate it every time I've had to be uh, anytime I've had to endure a Shakespeare play it's driven me insane this is one thing I cannot understand at all (laughs) and that's why I think the best Shakespeare adaptations of our time are the ones where some early 2000s director went I'm going to turn Twelfth Night into a teen rom-com like She's the Man is a wonderful Shakespeare adaptation, and, like, that's a hill that I'll die on. I think, like, yeah, it's doing the rom-com thing of making it, like, accessible to everybody. Um, And I do really sort of tend to enjoy that style of thing. Yeah, like, I think Ten Things I Hate About You is one of my favorite rom-coms as well, and that's based on one of Shakespeare's plays that I don't ever really have any interest in seeing, because it's the Taming of the Shrew, which I don't really like that play, um, but that movie is hilarious and delightful and super romantic and very fun to watch. And I, I do think that that genre of like let's take Shakespeare and make it something that normal people will just like is really cool. Because I sometimes take for granted the fact that like I can watch a Shakespeare play and understand what's going on. Like I was watching Macbeth um, with one of my friends, and she was like, "So what's happening?" And I was like, "Oh right." If you don't already know what's going to happen, it is very confusing when people talk like that. Yeah, I guess I like Lion King, technically. The modernized adaptations are good. I agree, Holly. And a sentence. I like watching <laughs> Shakespeare with subtitles so that I can read along with it, because sometimes there's, like, words that I don't know, and then when I see them written, I'm like, okay, I can figure out from context what that means. But then also, yeah, like, part of it is watching 
things like Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth, it's like, I know what's going on. Whereas when I watched Henry VIII, I was like, I really had to focus because I'd never interacted with that play before. And I was like, what is happening? Media is definitely uh, escape for me and turn off my brain. And so that's, I think that's why it has always um, turned me off to it because of that. Like, I, I'm not one of the, you know, about doing homework to, you know, to enjoy something, which not, certainly not in the same way, but like in a related way is why I'm not a huge fan of all the Marvel stuff, uh, which Holly also mentioned, and is like becoming a new funny lane of like people who think they know, you know, think they're cinema snobs, but the only thing they're snobbish about is Marvel movies. So I saw that someone said that the new Spider-Man was snubbed for not being nominated for Best Picture, which, as even as someone who similarly to Holly does not watch, you know, like the high art type films, uh, even I know that's. I mean, just it just sounds so stupid to say that. You just you don't sound smart saying that. Yeah, like that movie was fun. But was it? It wasn't art. And I, I don't think movies have to be art, but it, it certainly doesn't really compare to the things that are nominated for Best Picture, which are movies that, like, some thought was put into them beyond just, like, what's going to get people to freak out <clears throat> in the theater. I also think, like, I think, like, both sides of the, like, Marvel is the stuff and, like, high drama is the stuff side. I think they just, like, miss the point that, like, hey, movies can and are supposed to be fun. Um, Like, I think the point, I think I made the point in the article, I might have taken the sentence out, but one of the things that I was sort of saying and thinking about is, like, if we're going to consider cinema art, um, which, like, it is, it's an art form, you go to art school to become a filmmaker, whatever, if we're going to consider it art, I think we then we also have to consider that not all art um, is as provocative as other art. Like, some art is to make you think something, some art is to make you feel something, some art tries to make a grand sweeping statement, and some art is, like, decoration. Um, And I think movies can be decoration um, if you are watching them that way. A lot of my favorite movies certainly, I think, would qualify as, like, decoration. I saw a tweet recently from a playwright that I follow, and she said... Not all theater needs to be dessert, and not all theater needs to be vegetables. And sometimes you can think something is dessert, and then it is vegetables. And I was like, that's a weird metaphor, but the sentiment of, like, sometimes things can just be fun and be good because they're fun and enjoyable, and they're not really making you think about the world, that has more value sometimes than something that's going to make you think about climate change or fascism or whatever terrible thing is going on in the world um i also back to the marvel point i think a lot of people who only watch marvel movies have um read another book syndrome which a lot of people who are like really into harry potter have where it's like you read harry potter as a kid and then you never really read anything else you think it's the best literature there is and it's i think marvel because they just keep making stuff people who got into it as a kid grow up with it and that's all they watch and then they're like the themes it's so cool but it's like okay but have you actually watched movies that are doing themes because it's okay to like marvel movies and they're a lot of fun sometimes but sometimes it's just 
$200 million being spent on something that's going to make money. Yeah, like, Marvel movies, I think, cost so much money, and they, like, dominate, like, box office release, where it's like, I can definitely see why people hate just, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe machine for that reason, because they do kind of take over everything and make it a lot harder for, like, weird indie movies to get even, like, produced and greenlit. So I can definitely, like, understand that take. And I think, like, there is a lot of people who, like, are super into, like, Marvel movies who are, like, these movies are, like, like, to use, like, the dessert and vegetables metaphor. Like, they depending on, like, how it's going to suit their argument, they will say that they are either dessert or vegetables, but really, like, they don't always do a great job of being either. Like, I think there are some Marvel movies that make, like, an excellent point about, like, the human condition and the world and are fun and have, like, a place um, just, like, in cinema. And then there are other that are others that are just, like, Thingo Boom! And I think if you enjoy Thingo Boom, there's no shame in enjoying Thingo Boom. Um, but also, like, you don't need to insist that that is the best way to watch a movie. Just like you don't need to insist that, like, the best way to watch a movie is to sit there for three hours and watch The Irishman and have to take notes to understand what's going on. Yeah, I think the main thing that comes out of this discussion is, like, everyone should just enjoy what they want to enjoy and not tell other people they're wrong for enjoying what they like. You know? Because it's like, you're not better than someone else if you liked The Lighthouse. But you're also not better than someone else if you liked Spider-Man. Yeah, what's your favorite movie is my least favorite question to answer. Because people will be like, what is your favorite movie? And I do not fall on either side of the debate. So they'll be like, what's your favorite movie? And I will say, Wayne's World 2. Um, and then they'll be like, really? And I will go, yeah. And that's the end of the conversation. And I hate it. Because nobody... Because everybody just wants to sort of talk about why they think their kind of movie is the best. Yeah, I feel the same where it's like my favorite movies are from like a variety of different genres. And some of them I know are not technically that good, but there's something about them that I find really comforting or relatable. And so that's a movie that I like. And so when people are like, what's your favorite movie or what are your top five favorite movies? I'm like, I don't. I don't want to define your entire perception of me based on what movies I watch when I'm like want to watch something like American Ultra is one of my favorite movies not because I think it's good just because there's something like fun about stupid gory comedy where a bunch of people get murdered. I think the takeaway from this on top of people should just enjoy what they enjoy is that YouTube video essays from film students and graduates trying to say why X or Y um, blockbuster movie is the greatest thing ever made is are rotting our brains and we need to stop watching them and they need to stop being made because I think that's what's driving this whole nonsense conversation, not this conversation, but the whole like, uh, you know, Marvel blockbuster versus high art drama debate i more and more like see videos where people point out things that were very obvious and like the entire intention of a scene on a surface level and they're like isn't that deep isn't this director smart and it's like i'm glad you noticed that but you were supposed to notice that like not everything has to be like a 30 minute youtube video essay you can just watch a movie and then not make a tiktok about it 
so the last article that we are going to talk about this week is an article that I wrote, um, again, about a little evergreen topic. Um, nothing super controversial happening in the world of, I guess, things to have an opinion about. Um, I guess at least that I haven't already had an opinion about. Um, really seems like they're recycling the same controversies every week. But I digress. Um, I wrote about math, uh, which is super interesting and fun. I'm sure everyone is looking so forward to discussing math. Um, but, you know, I talked about why, I guess, so many people hate math um, and sort of looked into sort of the concept of, like, math anxiety, which is, like, a real genuine thing uh, where people just kind of are so anxious about math that they will avoid learning it. Um, and it, like, happens to people, like, as young as kindergarten, um, which is sort of crazy that, like, a school subject can do that to, like, a four-year-old. Um, but, yeah, so I talked about why people hate math and why I think it's down to sort of the way, one, the way that people are taught math. Um, it's not really taught as a skill. It's kind of taught as, like, an innate thing that some people are good at and everyone else just kind of has to suffer through. Um, it's also taught as, like, something that's like testable rather than something that you want people to be able to master to move on to the next thing um and then the other thing that i talked about was that just like societally we talk about math in a very very negative way um you know i remember going to kindergarten and my parents being like what'd you learn today and i was like i learned to count and then my parents were like oh just you wait just you wait until math gets evil um and just this perception of math as evil uh so that is uh, was one of my opinions this week. So I guess I just, to ask both of you, I know we talked about it a little bit before we started recording, um, just, like, what was your experience with math growing up? Were you good at it? I said I was good at math earlier, but I, I did, like, my dad helped me a lot with math homework. But once I got something, I was good at, like, figuring things out and working through problems. And I, I did pretty well in math for a while. And then I got too busy to take extra time to like sit down and figure stuff out. And I had it, I had in my grade 11 class, like the teacher switched out partway through the year. And then we had a different teacher and he wasn't very good. And I had already gotten behind because the teacher switched out at the beginning. And I just, I stopped being able to do math and I got really anxious about it. And I would like hide in the bathroom instead of going to class because I was like, very stressed about math and so now I'm not a math person at all but I, I used to be good at it and I'm still good at like puzzles and problem solving and so I kind of feel like a little bit sad that I don't really know how to do math anymore because I think it was something that I could have been good at had it been taught in a way that was like more accessible to me and my pace of learning because um, now I, I don't know anything. I have a similar kind of history with math. I was definitely the kid who was told, like, oh, you have, like, the math gift or whatever when I was young. And then, obviously, I was the kid who, you know, made other kids feel bad growing up that they were not good at math. Uh, but that's, you know, I was a young, impressionable mind who, like Holly said, was, you know, on the on the other side, kind of like the flip side of that like determinist view, right? That, you know, it just, math is how it is and like everyone experiences it the same way. And either, you know, you got it because you were, you know, you had the superhero ability that you were 
uh, endowed with at birth, or you, you know, are meant to just suffer through it until you can not do it anymore and be done with it. So that was me for a while. Uh, and then I think it was 10th grade when things kind of went off the rails again, bad teacher, Senya said, uh, but also I got used to not having to, you know, work too hard at it. Uh, and you had that, just that confidence of everyone telling me how I was just naturally able to do math. And then the second something threw a curveball, uh, it was a pretty steep and sudden decline uh, in, yeah, it was 10th grade. I think I might have taken 11th grade math. I think you had to, uh, but I don't remember much of that. I don't think that was a great uh, grade on my report card. Uh, but that was, I have not looked back since on math, but I really do appreciate your take on it in the article, Holly, because I think that whole way we talk about it is so screwed up, so ridiculous. Yeah, I was also like kind of the same. I was pretty good at math in elementary school. I I was really good at like memorizing things. So I got the multiplication tables down really quickly. And I guess like once you get the multiplication tables down, it's super easy to sort of reverse engineer that to be really good at like long division and also to be like quite good at algebra. Like I was really good at like the easy basic algebra stuff. Um, so I was like quite good at math through like seventh and eighth grade. Um, and then I got to, like, ninth grade, and I was taking, like, academic math, because, you know, obviously you have to take academic math, um, because they were, like, smart kid um, goes into academic math, we're gonna try and make a scientist. Um, but I took grade nine academic math, I wasn't great at it, I missed, like, a week of it, because I was sick, um, and I missed, like, the whole Y equals MX plus B lesson, and just completely fell off, had no idea what was going on. Um, and then 10th grade math also sucked. I remember, um, I can't remember if I did it on purpose or if I was just, like, so anxious that, like, I was like, there is no other way out of this than to start sobbing in the middle of the exam. Um, so I was writing my grade 10 math exam and I just started crying and my teacher was like, oh my god, uh, this kid is not... <laughs> this this is math anxiety right here so they like sent me down to guidance um and i think one of the guidance counselors actually ended up just writing the exam for me um and then because that sucked so bad um and i didn't have to take math to get into any of the college programs or university programs that i was looking at i took college level math in grade 11 which was just like I don't want to say it was pointless because there was definitely a point. It was a lot of like personal finance stuff, but repeated sort of ad infinitum um, to the point where no one was paying attention. Um, so that was my math experience. Um, and now I'm taking grade 12 math because as it turns out, when you change your major into um, sport management, they do in fact want you to have grade 12 math. Uh, so I'm taking grade 12 math to catch up. And what I have realized is, holy moly, this was easy. Um, and I'm real mad that I didn't just do it in high school, because uh, it's not hard, and I don't have, like, a, a weird genetic predisposition um, to being bad at math. I think we were talking about sort of, like, what makes math so scary, and I think part of it is, like, as a kid, people telling you, like, oh, if you're not good at math, you're not going to be able to get a good job, and then you won't have any money, and that'll suck. And it's like, there's so many jobs where you don't really need to know how to do complicated math. It obviously helps to know math because it does 
like in small ways come up in life. But that's part of, I think, what made me so anxious about math when I was younger was this idea that like, if you're not good at math, you're not going to be able to get a good job. And I come from a family of engineers, like both of my sisters are studying engineering and my dad is an engineer. So obviously all of them are really good at math and they're really into math. And I'm like, well, I, I can understand Shakespeare without needing to look up the translation into easier language, but I don't, I can't really do long division. And so, yeah, I think there's like this intense sort of, if you don't know math, you're not going to be able to do anything, but it's like, you can still do stuff. You're just going to do different stuff. And that, I think that sort of frustrates me. And like different stuff, including like different math too. Like I am in SPEMA right now. I last year I took an intro to sport finance class this year I'm taking a sport finance class um and I know that like when you put sport in front of finance it makes it sound like it's going to be easy I was actually talking to my roommate who used to be in accounting and she was like no 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 the concepts that they are teaching you are like these are the accounting formulas you are learning how to do accounting um and I didn't find that difficult or hard. It was formulas, it was addition, it was subtraction. Um, it was sometimes a little bit of multiplication. Um, and that kind of math is like fine. That kind of math is like easy to me. I understand that. And I think a lot of the sort of anxiety that I got, especially in like 10th grade math, came from a place of like, I didn't know like how or where these concepts were applicable. I didn't know like, in what context you would use it. Like, I remember, because it was always, like, the funny guy thing to be like, Miss, when are we going to use this in real life? And the teacher would just be like, you just have to learn it. Um, or, like, make up some, like, weird example that, like, actually wouldn't happen in real life. Um, but, like, if they had just sort of, like, said, like, hey, these higher concepts in math are going to be super useful to people who want to be engineers, who want to, like, get into physics, I don't know, the science kids, they are going to use these high concepts of math, um, and you should still learn them, um, because it's useful to learn how to solve problems like that, it is useful to train your brain in that logical sort of problem-solving thinking way, um, but also, if you don't get it, it's fine, the hardest math that you're going to have to do is like multiplying decimals um and i think if they had even just like explained that or said that like once i probably wouldn't have lost my mind so much doing math homework it's also insane that you know you're tracking people from essentially eighth grade when you're uh you know getting ready to go into high school and you have to pick your courses and all that like they already start tracking you right with the academic and um, applied level courses and like I don't I've heard that the tracking is they're toying with getting rid of it which is a great thing uh, but just to think that when you're 12 in eighth grade and essentially like that that decision of if you kind of if you you know up, if you're up to snuff for academic versus applied all like you're already tracking people, not just in their classes, but like potentially just in the way that they think about themselves and like their confidence and their abilities to do things and like how much they limit themselves personally, just like on a subconscious. So like that does a lot of, I don't know if necessarily damage is the right word, but like 
it has a huge impact on how people think about themselves and like how much they apply themselves and like it's just wild and i can't believe they do it so young and like i mean honestly i'm sure there's cases where it happens younger than that but like still even 12 is just it's absurd yeah like one of the things that i one opinion that i have is that tracking is bad for people and not just because it's like limiting the math that they're going to be able to learn but because i remember in high school there was like it was even it was like a social divide between the people who took and it almost always came down to what math class and what english class you were in um there was a social divide between the people who took academic level classes and people who took applied level classes and especially math like there was just there was a like borderline cultural difference like it was like like, to use, like, a very, like, rudimentary example, it was, like, you never saw the kids who took academic classes in the smoking pit. Um, the kids who started, who were in applied classes were the ones who always got blamed for starting fights. And it's just, like, it very much has to, like, there are so many other factors, but it also, it very much has to do with, like, you're telling a 12-year-old already what their capabilities are and you're telling them what they should expect from themselves and so if you're telling a 12 year old like don't expect great things from yourself like obviously that's that then becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy um and i know one thing that like happened to me when i switched from because grade 10 i took academic math and then grade 11 i took college level math one thing that happened to me was it was like switching into a class with people who had taken applied level math the whole time it was just it felt like a different environment the teachers didn't care as much about those kids um you know they didn't expect them to learn as much there weren't as many expectations and you know while it's not great to place huge expectations it's i think a good thing to have some to not just assume that they're all going to be like delinquents or something it's concerning definitely and like definitely should change it definitely needs to change because i mean you're right i did not see any of the uh college and uh, college track applied track kids in classes or anything so like throughout most of the day i wouldn't see them at, at in high school because i was in the academic classes and they were uh separate and you know generally speaking we had the better teachers in the academic classes and they had uh worse teachers and they you know, their classes might have acted out more or whatever. And, it, and it's like so much of this is controlled by, you know, how we told them in eighth grade that, or even before that, that you're not going to amount to much academically. And it's like, it's just so, it's so screwed up. And it's so crazy that they uh, still are doing that. It's really like interesting for me to hear about this because I went to an arts high school. So the social divide was like, what art you specialized in so all the music kids were friends and all the visual arts kids were friends and all the theater kids were friends um and i like have no real awareness of what the divide was like for college versus academic math um and i think we only had one level of english but yeah like that's something that sounds so crazy and messed up to me because i'm like I don't know, I, I come from like a totally different sort of high school experience. It's not so much that people cared, it's just more that it created a natural divide because you just didn't have, you know, you didn't have classes with those people. And yeah, th and then there's that little bit of like the genetic determinist stuff plays into it a little bit, but it's not like people necessarily cared specifically about the class. It's more just like it created 
created like uh, not circumstances, but like just an environment where, you know, you had that type of division and it was based on something that we were taught, you know, was like intrinsic to you and like your genetic code, which is just so, it's just so weird. <laughs> it's so messed up. But. It sort of goes back to what we were talking about, like with people deciding what they want to do in university when they're 17 and then having to go to university and realize that that's not necessarily what they actually wanted. But it's like, you're in middle school and someone says you're bad at math and that changes the whole trajectory of your life. You sort of mentioned that already, but oh, weird system. It's also like, I think like doubly weird because we like, we super do not do that really with other disciplines. Like, I guess like to an extent people are like, some kids just don't like reading, but that doesn't mean that we stop trying to teach them English as I get older, I'm realizing that, like, math is a skill. You can't just be good at math. It's, like, the same way that, like, painting or, like, writing is a skill. You can't just be good at it. It is something that you have to practice. And, like, we do, like, socially have the idea of, like, some people are just better at some things and some people are just, like, naturally talented and gifted in certain areas. But it, like, it is so just, like, heavy with math. Resources to them. Again, that's another layer of pulling it back, so I'm going to leave it there so I don't keep um, drawing us further and further from the specific point of talking about math. that does it for another episode of the latest thank you holly and asenia for joining me today to talk about these uh, great articles that the two of you wrote as well as uh, chad's article and uh, thank you all for listening we really appreciate you uh, tuning in remember that you can find the full articles we talked about here today and many many more at our website www.brockpress.com you can also find us on instagram twitter facebook and linkedin at the brock press on top of following us on social media, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, you name it. Any place you listen to podcasts, you'll find us. Just look up the latest The Brock Press Podcast and you should find us with no issues. Uh, you can also find the podcast on our YouTube channel and at our website. With all that said, thanks again, and we will see you next time for another episode.